your Bible with you, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. And we're going to be, as Ed comes up and takes this, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 44 together this morning. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will have been an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. One of the ways that John, the author of this gospel, describes himself is he says he is, he simply calls himself the one Jesus loved. My thing's going to be like kind of distorted and fuzzy, and if we can't fix it, I'm going to use that, but I don't like that thing, so I'm going to try to, try to fight it. I think that's what it is. All right, all right. I can't move at all. I just have to like pick a spot. John describes himself as the one that Jesus loved. He doesn't say I'm the only one Jesus loves, but he definitely describes the relationship he has with Jesus as, you know, Jesus really loved me. He really liked me. And he, uh, we actually see in this account that Jesus really loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. It seems like he has a real close relationship with him. Jesus seems to be one of those people who, when people are around him and they get to know him, they, they seem to feel like, you know, this Jesus, he really, he really likes me. You know, he really cares about me. I'm, I'm somebody he really loves. I don't know if you've known anybody like that. I know as a pastor, sometimes, I remember one time, um, I remember one time, okay, I'm just going to do it. Gosh, oh man, I'm going to look like Justin. He loves holding the microphone. It's going to mess up my whole flow. All right. Okay, now I'm tempted to just tell jokes because for some reason having a microphone, I'm not going to do it. Karaoke, yeah. I mean, if something starts playing, I'm not going to fight it. Um, so Jesus, okay, so at my last church, one time I had coffee with this guy and uh, he was kind of, we were getting to know each other and he said, you know, for some reason, uh, Wherever, whenever I go to, go to a church, like, I just always end up becoming really good friends with the pastors. I'm just that kind of a guy. And that's the red flag kind of went up, and I was like, okay, well, we'll see. And I wouldn't say we became very good friends, but um, I, I guess there are some people who feel that way about themselves, and maybe that's because certain pastors or certain, uh, certain teachers, certain people, they just make you feel that way. Like, this person really loves me and they care about me. Sometimes you're disappointed when you think, oh, they really like me, and then you start to realize, oh, they're like that with everyone, uh, and they just love everyone, they like everybody equally, uh, and, and sometimes that diminishes it for you, other times it doesn't. And that could be because people are really good listeners, they make eye contact and they talk to you, they, like, remember things about you. A lot of times it just has to do with the fact that, like, the way that they greet you, right? Like, when you see this person, the way they greet you, you go, they really like me. I think they really care a lot about me, right? There's something about Jesus that with the people that he's close with, they often describe him this way, especially in the Gospel of John. It's this idea that you really had a sense that Jesus cared deeply about you. For a guy who was telling people to do some pretty difficult things, calling them out quite a bit, uh, he still made you feel that way when you were around him. And so it is so 
weird that in this account, that in this miracle in Jesus' ministry, he acts the way he does. Because his actions seem in so many ways to be the opposite of the way you would treat someone who you care about and who you love. You see, he gets word that Lazarus is sick and he's possibly near death. They send word to Jesus saying, remember, it's the one that you love. And Jesus, and it is, this is somebody that Jesus loves. Jesus says to his disciples simply, okay, let's stay where we are for a couple days. He doesn't go anywhere. It's a two-day journey to get to where Lazarus is. And instead of leaving right away and saying, let's get there as fast as we can so we can save him, he doesn't. He says, uh, let's stay right where we are. There's even a point when the disciples go, Jesus, isn't it a good idea to go, you know, uh, right now? He says, ah, it's dark. We shouldn't travel in the darkness. Says it in a very eloquent way. We should wait until it's light at least. He like really puts off going to see Lazarus. And then he gets there and Lazarus has died because it's a two-day journey. And so now Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time that Jesus gets there. We know part of why Jesus does this is something that he says in verse four. We read in verse four, when Jesus heard it, which is that Lazarus is sick and near death, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna do something here. If you've been following Jesus for a while, this is the point where you go, nope. He's going to, this is, we should listen up. This is going to be a big one. He's going to try to do a lesson here, right? So Jesus says, I'm going to do something through this. But he says, it's not going to end in death, which it does seem to kind of end in death. But what happens is it ultimately passes through death, this whole thing with Lazarus. But Jesus is not going to end in death. I'm not worried about it. Let's just stay here. There's a whole reason why I'm going to do things the way I'm going to do them. Now, the reason why Jesus waits Four days. The reason why he makes sure that he doesn't get to Lazarus until four days after he's died is because in the ancient world, uh, people believed that after a person died, that the spirit of that person would hover around them for about three days. And if it wanted to, it could actually re-enter the person's body. Now, this was probably partly because they had a pretty limited understanding of medicine at the time, and people would be pronounced dead who had turned out weren't dead. And they would say, oh, the spirit hovered and now it's back in them, right? And so, uh, you know, somebody would seem pretty dead and then they would, uh, you know, after a little while, the breathing would start very shallowly or the, the palpitations of the heart would start kind of quietly and, and then the person would come back and they would say, oh, the spirit has entered their body again. And so Jesus wanted to wait until after it was clear that he was dead to the point to where they said his body had probably would have an odor to it. This is totally true in the King James Version. It doesn't say there will be an odor. It says he stinketh, which is awesome, right? Uh, if you want an argument for the King James, there it is. He stinketh. Uh, but the reason Jesus does this is because he's trying to show something like every miracle. Every miracle that Jesus has done, every miraculous thing in his ministry has not just been about that thing that he's doing. It's been about showing something to these people about who Jesus is and what he can do in their life. Now, what we see is Jesus interact with these two women when he shows up. He, he comes and he, uh, he sees Martha. He sees her, and he uh, begins talking to her. It says that he, he comes, and they say, Jesus is outside of the town. Martha goes out to meet him, and as she meets him, she starts talking with him. And her conversation with him is, 
not that emotional, I would say, of a conversation. Basically, she says, uh, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, you know? And Jesus says, it's okay, he'll, he'll be resurrected. And she says, well, I know, you know? They start talking about theology. I, I understand that he'll be resurrected, that he'll, he'll, you know, at the end of the last day, you'll bring him back. And, and, uh, and, then, and then they, you know, Jesus says, you know, he tries to comfort her a little bit. But basically, they have a conversation between Jesus and Martha about theology, about what's going to happen with Lazarus and, and why she shouldn't feel too badly about this thing that's gone on or the fact that Jesus isn't there yet. Then uh, she gets her sister and her sister Mary comes. And Mary is a little bit more emotional than Martha. It says that she throws herself at Jesus' feet. She says, if you had been here. It's the exact same thing Martha says, but she says it after throwing herself at Jesus' feet. If you had been here, our brother would still be alive. And it says that she weeps and she's overcome with emotion and with feeling. Now, we've met Mary and Martha before. It says right here in this account that um, Mary's the one that poured the perfume on Jesus' feet and anointed them. But we also have seen in the account of Mary and Martha, they're the ones that Jesus comes to their house and Martha's the one you're not supposed to be because she's all busy and distracted and preoccupied trying to take care of him. And Mary's the good one who does what we're supposed to do, right? And she sits at Jesus' feet. And you read that and you're like, who knows what I would have done right in that situation. Uh, and, uh, and so in that instance, it, it seems like, you know, Mary's kind of the one that's good. In this situation, uh, Mary, you're kind of, kind of a little emotional, aren't you? You know, you're a little emotional for someone whose brother just died. Maybe you should be more like Martha and you should talk to Jesus about theology or something, right? Why, why is this even here? And why are they so distinctly different? And the reason it's here is significant because what we see in Mary and Martha is we see in, in the personalities of Mary and Martha, in like the very temperaments of Mary and Martha, we see these two extremes, right? And it's the way that we deal with the things that we deal with. Uh, Martha is very logical. She's very task-oriented. She's like practical. Uh, she doesn't seem to get worked up very easily. Whereas Mary is very emotional. Uh, she's very dramatic. Uh, she's very feeling-oriented. She's prone to worship rather than maybe think and respond out of that. And you see in these two women two totally different ways of being. And what you also see is Jesus being two totally different ways. When Jesus is with Martha, he is not very emotional. When he's with Mary, we read one of the most well-known verses, especially in youth ministry, because if you ever tell a student to memorize a scripture, they'll be like, uh, Jesus wept, right? That's, that's a verse. Technically, it counts, right? Wept Jesus, if it's a different translation. I don't know. Weepeth, whatever. King James. It's a King James joke. Thanks. Microphone. Why, why here? Why is this the point that we read? Of all the points, we read Jesus wept, right? Because Jesus is talking to Mary, who is, it says, overcome with emotion. You see, what this shows us about Jesus is important. If we're going to look at, at, at an encounter in which someone dies, in which people are suffering, and is there any greater suffering than the suffering involved in death, involved in mourning and grieving, the loss of someone or ourselves, experiencing sickness that could potentially lead to death. And what we see in this is so important. And it's this, it's that Jesus himself actually suffers things with us. 
We read about in the Bible that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came and lived in the flesh, which means he knows what we've been through. But that's a really hard thing to wrap our minds around. It's still hard for us because we think, well, okay, so if Jesus is like me, then help me explain, help me understand this, right? All of the things that make me human are all of the things that Jesus seems to be able to overcome whenever he wants to, right? I get hungry. Am I going to have food? Jesus is like, not with me around. Here's some food, right? I get stressed out and anxious. Jesus is like, I know the end of that story. I'm not worried, right? Uh, I think about sickness and death. Jesus is like, that's nothing for me, right? And then he's like, oh, I came and I lived in the flesh and I'm just like you. It's a little hard for us to relate to that or understand that, right? And yet somehow Jesus seems to be able to know all of the things that he knows and have the ability to do things because he's God. And yet, these very emotions are drawn out of him when he's with these different people. It says that he is overcome. He's troubled by death. And he's troubled to the point of weeping. And the reason that he is, is because he suffers these things with them. He meets them both in the midst of their turmoil and their loss. And it doesn't matter how they react. What matters is this. They are being themselves. They're being themselves with Jesus. And it actually brings out an aspect of Jesus himself. But beyond that even, he's not just empathizing with them. He's actually experiencing this thing with them. Now, this is a hard thing for us to grasp because for many of us, we, uh, well, there's, there's two ways that you can be. You can, you can, you can, and we'll talk about the extremes. You, you, there is the Mary and there's the Martha, okay? Now, no one lamented and wept and wailed while mourning like, an, like a person in the ancient Jewish world. They were known for it. In fact, if you had any money at all, you hired people to come and you paid them to mourn at funerals loudly, Okay? That communicated how much you loved this person. Could you even imagine if that was a thing now, right? You, could, you paid people and they came and they wailed and they wept and they mourned for, for days if, they, if you could afford to pay them to do it for days. The more, the more money you had, the louder the wailing in the morning was because they believed that that was how you communicated mourning. That's why people, it says, are there days later. That's why it says people are following these women around where they're going, because these are the people who are mourning and who are wailing and who are weeping, right? You have these dramatic people, and it communicates if there's not enough emotion, if there's not enough feeling, and it's not real, and it didn't happen. And then you have this other side, this side that says, well, if you're mature, right, if you're reasonable, if you're in control of yourself at all, like you should be, then you don't deal with all these emotions. You don't deal with all these feelings. Now, the gospel was being communicated to Jewish people and Gentiles. And the Greeks had this word, and this word was called apatheia. You're never going to guess what word comes from apatheia, okay? It's the word apathy. And apatheia was a big deal to them. It's the ability to not be affected by any emotion whatsoever, the Greeks believed that if you became emotional, that you were giving power to that thing over you. So if I became, if I felt emotion, then that meant emotion was taking control of me. It made me weak. It made me immature. It made me someone that people shouldn't listen to or follow the advice of or follow the example of. That's not what we see in Jesus. I think oftentimes one of the hardest things about suffering, and I mean any kind of suffering, is that we feel alone when we suffer. Because no matter how many people are around us, no matter how many people feel like they know what we're going through, no one actually knows what we're going through like us. No one. 
In fact, there's nothing more frustrating when you're suffering than people telling you that you shouldn't be feeling the way you're feeling, acting the way you're acting. You should be more upset. You should be less upset. You should act this way. You shouldn't act this way. And what Jesus does is he actually is that one person who suffers alongside you. He feels the pain that we felt living in flesh. This is because Jesus lives in the flesh. One of the first things that you learn in seminary when you take a class on how to interpret the Bible is the definition of the word sarx. Because sarx, S-A-R-X, is a Greek word and it means flesh. And the reason you have to learn that definition is because the Bible tells us again and again that Jesus came in the flesh. But when we think about the word flesh, we think about bad things, right? We think the flesh is sinful nature. It's the bad side of us. So how is it that Jesus came and lived in the flesh, but he wasn't sinful? Well, it's because whenever that word is used for Jesus, it's a word that simply means to be physical. It doesn't mean sinful. It doesn't mean impure. It doesn't mean lustful or bad or wrong. It means simply physical. And to live in this physical body means to be prone to experience these feelings and these things. And Jesus goes through it with them. It actually like stirs up within him things that didn't even seem to be there before when he was with another person. The other reason why this matters, apart from us just Knowing that we're not alone in it is knowing that pain isn't wrong. Knowing that to lament over suffering isn't sin. Knowing that whether we hold it inside or whether we let it out loudly, that it's not wrong. But it's a real thing. And that it's nothing to be ashamed of. This is what it is to live a physical life. And so what Jesus does after he is with these two sisters and he himself mourns over death itself that death even has to exist, that all the suffering and pain that he's encountered, all the hunger and the, and the, and the uh, disparity between groups of people and the judgmentalism and all of the stuff that he's had to experience because of, because of sin in the world, as, as he's overwhelmed and troubled by this thing, he then goes to Lazarus, says, bring me to him, open, open up this tomb, and he calls Lazarus out. He... he He tells Martha before he even does this, though, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am, several times in John. He's describing who he is, obviously. He's saying, if you want to understand why I'm here, what I'm about, then look at these things. That's what I'm about. So I am resurrection. You can actually be brought back from the things that kill. You can, you can have new life in me, but then he also does, he doesn't just say, I am resurrection, right? I'm resurrection. That's pretty good. I'd take that. I'd take resurrection. I don't know anybody who wouldn't take resurrection, believer, non-believer. If Jesus says, okay, now you get to choose. You're dead. Do you want resurrection? Yes, please. Jesus doesn't just say, I am resurrection though. He says, I am resurrection and life. And I think the difficulty about this as I've been thinking about this, as I've been praying about this, I've been thinking of my own life with this thing, I think the really hard part about this is this, that one of these we are way more prone to want than the other. We want the resurrection that Jesus gives, but we don't actually want the life that he gives as well. Nine times out of ten, we would take just another chance. We would take healing. We would take him fixing the situation that we're in. We would take him miraculously solving the problem that we're dealing with. But why? 
so we can get back to what we're doing and keep going. But Jesus doesn't say, I am resurrection alone. He says, I'm resurrection, and what's life now? Now that you're resurrected, what is life? Life is me. Your life is me now. And I think we want this resurrection so badly, but we don't want the life. And why don't we want the life? The first reason, honestly, is because we aren't really afraid of the real death. We're all, we're afraid, people are afraid of death. Death is one of those things. that It is the ultimate thing. It is, it is the thing that when you become aware of the fact as a young child that at some point in your life you will die and you have to cope with that idea and you have to accept that idea. It is one of the hardest things to accept, if not the hardest thing to accept, and then not to live your whole life in light of this difficult knowledge that you will die one day. To accept, I, there is this death. But that death isn't the real thing to be feared, according to the Bible. The Bible says that's not the one you need to really be afraid of. The thing you need to really be afraid of is another kind of death, a death that comes from something that is far worse than just what can physically happen to you. It is a death that comes from sin. Sin causes so much destruction, so much pain, so much suffering in our lives. In a sense, we can live for so long and we can continue to, even as we live, die again and again and again. Die death over and over and over again. The same deaths over again. Do the same things to ourselves. Hurt ourselves in the same way. Hurt the same people in the same way. Find new ways to hurt people. Find new ways to hurt ourselves. Find new ways to be separated from God again and again and again. Because that's what sin does. And, and it's, as crazy as it sounds, and given the option, most of us would choose to simply keep having more opportunities to do that very thing, rather than to have this other life, this other life that actually finally deals with this thing called sin. Jesus shows that he can conquer death, but the real death, the one that many of us aren't actually that afraid of. We're too fixated on the physical things that can happen to our physical life because of how invested in it we are. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. And although I promised myself kind of internally I would never do this, I'm going to say that, like, it's something from Star Wars. And it's not because I hate Star Wars. It's just because I'm not that guy, okay? And, uh, but here we go, okay? I'm going to spoil a movie that came out 30-something, 40 years ago. And, uh, and if I spoil it for you, then I don't care, okay? Because you probably don't care either. So when I was a kid and I started watching these Star Wars movies, as you watch all three of the first three that I saw, uh, you watch this evil force, the dark side. And you watch it get, uh, begin to grow and develop over the course of these movies to become worse and worse, more diabolical and more evil. You see them destroy entire planets, kill innocent people, corrupt good people. They do so much bad for the galaxy that someone has to save us from them. But the good news is that there's this guy, Luke Skywalker. He's got the coolest name ever. 
And you also watch him over the course of these movies develop his ability to get better and better at combating the dark side. And you know that there's going to be a point when it's going to be him against them and it's going to be so he gets cooler. They make him cooler and that really helps. And you're like, it's going to happen. He's going to win. They don't stand a chance. And then you get to the scene at the end where it's him. And then there's, there's even an emperor and he's so much uglier and nastier than Darth Vader. And he's in the picture now. And they face off. And you think he's going he's to kill this guy. This is it. He's going to defeat them. He's going to conquer them. We're going to win. The good people are going to win. The light side is going to win. And then the emperor says the worst thing that he could say to him. He says, yes, strike me down, kill me, and when you do, I will win. Is that not the most diabolical thing you've ever heard in your life? He says, look, look out the window. Hey, look, look out the window. I'm killing your friends right now, actually. I happen to be killing some of your friends right now as we're having this conversation. Just, just strike me down. Just be angry. Get angry. Give in. It's what you know you want. Everyone watching this wants it, too. They want to see you strike me down. Just strike me down, and you win, and I win. How diabolically genius is that? This is the nature of the sin that we talk about. Because the problem with it is when we try to actually combat it the same normal, typical ways, we do the same thing. We go, all right, there's bad stuff. I'm doing bad stuff. It's bad. I got to get it out of my life. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to follow some rules. I'm going to try to discipline myself. I'm going to try to be a good person. The world needs more good people. Okay, fine. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to be a a good person. It'd probably be a little bit more fun to be a bad person, but I'm going to need to grow up at some point anyway, and I definitely probably don't want my kids to be bad people, so they should be good too. So, okay, this is fine. So we we find some rules, and we we work on ourselves, and we, we try to identify things we could be better at and do better at, and we try to root all that stuff out. And what we do in the process of that, in this attempt to overcome this evil that is sin, is we actually give into it all the more. Because we do this thing called self-righteousness, and it's the people that Jesus got the most angry at because they were claiming to have the answer, but they were actually leading people to even more sin than when they started. Because there's the only time that you're closer um, to, to Satan than when you sin is when you try to fix that sin yourself through your own efforts and the things that you do. This is why it is real death. This is why it is so diabolical. This is why it is so powerful. Because our best attempts to overcome it ourselves only bring us deeper into it. But we don't really fear it that much. What we fear is the physical death. What we fear is the physical things that happen. We fear the things that can harm us. We fear the things that can make us sick. We fear the things that can take away our family and our friends and our money and our abilities and our freedoms and our comfort and our long lives that we all want to live. We fear those things so much, but we don't fear the real enemy. Why would Jesus draw this out like he does? Why would he be, it seems, so insensitive to these people who he loves so much by allowing Lazarus to die and then bringing him back instead of healing him to begin with to show that he has the power to do something that no one has had the power to do before him because he knows that there's a point when people are just going to have to trust him that he has forgiven them. They will have to have faith that when they die, that when they see God, that they will be forgiven, really, that they have been forgiven because of what Jesus did. We want resurrection so badly 
but we don't want the real life. We just are so invested in what we're trying to do now that anything that gets in the way of that is a threat. And when God says to us, but I want to resurrect you to something even better, we can't let it go. It's like a, it's like a kid building a sandcastle on a beach, making it bigger and better and bigger and better. And their parents saying, come, I want you to care about something else because I have some really bad news for you. Eventually, at the end of every single day, believe it or not, the water comes back up the beach and it washes that thing away. And I don't say that to say that the lives that we live are, are purposeless or meaningless or they don't count for anything because we're told in the Gospels themselves that the very things that we do with the time that God's given us and the resources he's given us matter eternally. But they are not eternal. And how hard is it for us to take our eyes off of that thing that we're building and, and believe that there's something else that he's calling us to that's better. But it's so hard to do that. It is so hard to say, I want the life too. Because it, it seems to be that the only way to do that is to make choices we don't want to make. To start to, what, what do I do? Do I dislike all the things in my life that I care the most about and say, okay, now I'm going to love Jesus? How do I do that? How do I stop loving things? Is that really the answer? Is that really what we're supposed to do? But it's not. That's not the answer. That's not how we do it. And, and it's one of the easiest, the biggest mistakes that we make. Just like we make the mistake of thinking that, that legalism is the way that we overcome sin, we make the mistake of thinking that, that despising everything about ourselves and our world and our lives is the way that we get to this life that Jesus offers, but that's not it. The answer is not that we have to be so much less that we're worthless and we're nothing and our lives are minimized to be pointless. The answer is that somehow God has to become so big for us and in our lives that we're willing to give him anything. If God is everything, only then can we actually give him anything in our lives? And if we try to do it in reverse, we will be miserable. For me personally, this is so, so difficult because even though my parents overcame great obstacles to give my sister and I a great life and a great home growing up, I still seemed to have this feeling and sense about myself from an early age that there was something wrong with me. And I'm not talking like I'm a sinner. I'm talking like there's just something wrong with me compared to other people. And some of you are like, eh, you know, okay, that's fine. And so I would spend my life going to counselors and therapists and, and getting on various medications and things to try to figure out how to, how to be more normal or be better and to overcome this sense of like, of like no, there's something wrong here. And as I would talk to people who would counsel me, they would often tell me, like, there isn't anything wrong with you. You need to believe that you're worthy of these things, like love and, and everything else. But I still tried as much as I could do. And everything that I tried to do, every, every time I went to school and I tried to do well, every time I had a job or a relationship with people and I tried to do well, all of it is in some way an effort to hopefully be able to prove to myself more than anybody else, there's nothing wrong with me. And then if someone ever told me that something was bad about me or something didn't go well, it took every ounce of effort in me and in my life to not let that thing take me all the way back to this place of saying, see, there really is something wrong, of this like terrible insecurity. 
And the difficulty is every time that I would go and I would talk to people or a lot of times I talk to counselors, they would say to me, the solution is this. You have, to, you have to love yourself more. You have to think more highly of yourself. You have to see that you're better than you think you are. But it wasn't until I would talk to Christians or even in the church as I would go to the church and I would become involved in the church through my life. So much of the time it felt like the message I was hearing was this is how messed up you are. And so if you root out all these messed up things in your life and you make them better, then there won't be anything wrong with you anymore. And then God will love you. And then you'll be good. And you can be happy with yourself. But it turned out that wasn't actually what they were saying in church. It turned out that wasn't actually what a lot of people were saying to me. It was what I was hearing because of all the brokenness that I had. What they were really saying to me was that this is the truth of the gospel. The gospel says that God is so big and God is so glorious, and God is so beautiful, and he is so good, that the more that you see that, the more complete you will be. It isn't about beating yourself up all the time and, and being convinced of how bad you are. It's about seeing how good and great God is and letting that give you the ability to live your life for the first time with open hands, saying, I don't actually need things to go a certain way for things to be okay because of who God is, because he's everything. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad theology out there that teaches, especially that teaches Christians and says to people, what God really wants is just to heal everything that goes wrong with you physically. What God wants is to prolong your life as much as possible. What God wants is to give you more money when you don't have enough. And he wants to fix the problems in your life whenever things break. That, that God wants to do those things and that's why he came. And that if you believe enough and have enough faith and try enough and hope enough, that he will do those things. And if he's not doing them, then it's because you don't believe enough. And that's not true. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is showing here. What Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is not about prolonging things for you and making things easier all the time and better in your circumstances. The kingdom of God is about showing you where real life is found. And when real life is found in God himself, in Jesus himself, then those things are not where life is found. That is where joy comes from. That is where fulfillment comes from. And how many of us can say that that's the way that we live? That's the way that we view things. Why would Jesus allow Lazarus, who he loves, and his sisters, who he loves, to go through this? Why would he allow his disciples, who are about to leave the church, to see him do some of the most callous things that he would do in his ministry, it seems? It's because he's showing them, I have the power to be life itself. That life in me is better than getting answers to all these other things that you want. Jesus says himself, we, we read about it in John 17 at the end of his ministry, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus describes his whole reason for being as glorifying God. He says, that's what I live for. We, we live our lives to basically glorify ourselves, okay? I get one life, I get one limited period of time, and so I'm going to spend as much of that time as I can making my experience and me as big as I can, as great as I can. I'm a cheerleader for me and the things that matter to me and, and are important to me personally. And what Jesus simply says is, I am not that. I am here for God. 
In fact, you see it in some of the other Gospels when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness early in his ministry. Satan comes to Jesus and he goes, look, if you wanted to, you could, you could throw yourself off this cliff and you'd be like flying and stuff and angels would save you. You could like eat whatever you want. You don't need to be fasting in the desert right now. You could have powers. You could probably, you know, shoot lasers out of your eyes and stuff like that. You could do anything you want to do. You'd be awesome. And Jesus says, I didn't come here to do things for myself. I came here to bring glory to God. And, and everything that I do that brings glory to God is like water when you're thirsty and food when you're starving and life when you're dying and wasting away. That's how it feels for me to bring glory to God in the things that I do. The reason that this is so hard for so many of us is because we want some of what Jesus talks about and we want the power that he offers and the things that he does miraculously but we don't actually fully want the life that he offers. And if that's where our heart is at, then we'll never be satisfied with who he is, with what he gives us in the end of the day. If anything, it'll feel like we're gambling with our lives. Like, as long as things turn out well, as long as they turn out okay, then this is all good for me. But if it doesn't turn out okay, then I don't really know how much I believed any of this to begin with. There is nothing like being able to say that God is everything. I, I could only imagine the freedom that would come from being able to say that because God is everything for me, that I could give anything, I could give anything, that I could let go of anything. Not burn it up in a fire, but I could let go of it. And that in doing that, that I would actually still have joy and fulfillment. And is it possible that the lack of joy, the lack of peace, the lack of fulfillment, all of the fear and all of the frustration, all of the things that we struggle with and deal with, that, that that stuff comes from us not being able to say that God really is everything. And that that is actually a good thing then, because what that stuff does is it points us to where we need to go. And where we need to go isn't just rooting out all that stuff in our lives and dealing with it. It's not going and sitting in front of counselors every day for the rest of our life and saying, I got I to gotta deal with this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Sorry, Brent, I know you're hearing me say this, this isn't good for counselors. But it's, it's you know, they have a lot of job security, believe me. It's actually saying my view of God, this points me to the fact that I need something outside of myself. I need something bigger than myself. This will never be enough for me. And for those of you who have had things go pretty well, you know the very same thing. Because some of the most anxious people I know have some of the best lives. And the fear comes from knowing that the other shoe could drop at any moment. To be able to let go and freely give up, even at the best points of our lives, and say, God is everything, and so I can give him anything. To say that I want the life that Jesus gives, not just the resurrection from the pain, and to be able to know that when we do suffer and when things are hard, that we don't go through that alone. That Jesus is right there, experiencing it with us, saying it is okay to be you, it is okay to feel the way you feel about this thing. I know how you feel because I felt it too.